it's magic again and I think the just the act of drawing a place makes the place magic in many ways um and so I feel like travel also makes me do it more so it's it's like a it feeds each other kind of Hello and welcome to the Sneaky Art Podcast. I'm your host Nishant Jain. I like to describe myself as a deliberate creative, a deliberate writer, a deliberate artist and a deliberate podcaster. What I mean by that word is that there was no natural progression in my life towards doing these things. I made discrete, conscientious decisions at various points in my life to be who I am. This meant pushing myself to write regularly back when there was no real way to make money off of your writing online it meant starting a webcomic when social media was still in its infancy and there wasn't really a way to go viral it meant giving my creative pursuits time after all other obligations in my case that was finishing a bachelor's and then a master's degree in mechanical engineering and entering into a phd program in biomechanics and neuroscience at one point I decided I wanted to be a full-time writer. I was done with the half measures and I was not content with somehow stealing an hour at the end of a busy day. So I decided to change the ladder that I was climbing and start at the base of a new one. I became an artist a couple of years after taking this decision and I became a podcaster another couple of years after that. The guiding force behind all these decisions was my curiosity. both to learn things and to do things i like to think of curiosity as my fuel it drove my interest in science for a very long time and today it drives my art my writing and also every single podcast conversation that i'm able to have coming to today's episode i was eager to speak with my guest for two interconnected reasons firstly her style makes me very curious about her work and secondly i've come to learn that she just like me is also an artist out of deliberate intent my guest today is urban sketcher and illustrator anna wilson speaking with me from cornwall in england anna went a long way forward with academia she holds a phd in human geography we start our conversation talking about that you will see that her education lends her a unique perspective to the world and this is reflected in the subjects she chooses for her art and the way that she looks at them as a self-taught artist i'm always curious to hear about other people who have treaded this path was there even a path to begin for them or did they have to make their own way through the woods of their lives at what point taking this analogy a little forward did they encounter the paths of other artists and in which ways did they choose to follow it or to continue on their own in this respect We talk about organized education and also decentralized education which is booming since COVID-19. I ask Anna about the people whose services she used to pick up key skills and we talk not only about her art but also about the business of being an illustrator. So, let's get right into this conversation. I hope you will enjoy it as much as I did. Hello 
Anna and welcome to the Sneaky Art Podcast. I'm really happy to speak with you today. I'm so pleased to be here. Thanks very much. I love to draw and I've listened to lots of your podcasts now and I'm very excited to have the opportunity to talk to you because uh, someone else that loves drawing as well, it's such a joy to have a conversation about drawing. So very pleased to be here. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. I think this is maybe the best thing about speaking to people who draw on location, especially is how much we love to talk about it with each other and share notes. So I hope I'll pick up lots of little ideas from you. I've already been following you for many years on Instagram and uh, while I was following you just on Instagram, I knew you as an urban sketcher. And over time, I realized, especially seeing the kind of whimsy in your drawings, that you're also an illustrator for children's books. But uh, now in researching for this episode, I realized I learned that you're also a graphic designer. You've traveled quite a bit and you have a very intriguing and interesting academic uh, alt- alternate alternate side. Uh, you've, you've got a PhD in geography. So uh, t- tell me a bit of this, uh, a bit of this story. I want to know the kind of motivations and interests that moved you towards higher education in this field and also what your PhD was about. Yeah, so I think I have always wanted to travel, I think, for as long as I remember as a little kid, I used to... Um, pick up an uncle of mine from the airport who lived overseas. I was in Australia then, so I felt very far from the world. But he used to leave and come back from somewhere. I didn't really know when when I was small, but I couldn't wait for the day that I got to go through those gates and head off overseas. And I think um, since I've been an adult, it's kind of what I've spent most of my life doing. Um, I think when I I was young, I also loved drawing. Um, So it's... The, the two things, travel and drawing, I think have directed my entire life, um, different things with different power and, I suppose, dominance at different moments. Um, so I think the, I, I, yeah, I was good at drawing. I was always that kid in class that could draw and that did the drawing when you needed someone to draw and um, or spent lots of my high school drawing when I should have been doing other subjects. But I was also really good at mathematics and physics and I had um I was encouraged to pursue that and drawing was definitely something you should you know it might be fun but you know really that real sense that it wasn't something you could do for a living it wasn't something that should ever be more than a hobby you know much too risky to go down that path and so I always laugh because I ended up doing a PhD in human geography, which is also not a very secure pathway. And I think, uh, yeah, anyway, I think so. I I sort of tried lots of things at university. I started maybe four or five undergraduate degrees um, and then I quit and I went to Kenya um, just for about eight months and I taught English and lived in a tiny little village and, um, I was young, I was only 19, um, so I, it, it really blew my mind. I just was um, completely changed by it, I guess, like I lived with no electricity or running water or um, and just learnt so much, I guess, about myself, about the world, about power and inequality and access to resources and came back and then studied that. So I studied um, international development as an undergrad 
degree and history because I was really interested in how it came to be that the world look, looks the way it does today. Um, so I was very passionate about that for a long time and I think at the same time as this I always also drew um, but mostly life drawing. So I, I was very, I, I studied that, sorry, I did a master's in that and uh, undergrad in that. And then a PhD in human geography, which is, I guess, slightly different from international development, but still really about understanding the relationship between people and the places that they live and the the kind of ways that um, economics and politics and culture and society kind of all come together in an interesting melting pot in different ways in different places. Um, yeah, and I... I as I as my career progressed, I drew less and less. I think I I got more and more um, busy academically and had a really it took lots of my creative energy trying to write academic papers and trying to really chase that career path because it's very competitive and um, I was quite successful for a little while, but I. I also started to kind of die, I think, because I'd stopped drawing by this point and um, sort of had a bit of a crisis one day, I think, where I was just realising, well, actually, we, we realised we couldn't have children, which was a big deal. And at this sort of, my husband and I were both rethinking life and what do we do? And he got a job in Mongolia. Um, so I thought, oh, well, I'll quit my postdoc at, ANU in Australia and write a book in Mongolia but I didn't write the book and I started drawing again and that was when I discovered I think um I think I first discovered Danny Gregory as I've heard lots of people in your podcast also talk about um I read his book I've forgotten which one um and then found I think it was the first year sketchbook school started um, just while I was in Mongolia. So I, I did some of their first classes and that got me in a habit of drawing again every day. And that was where things really shifted, I suppose, from my academic career into, uh, yeah, reminding myself of my deep love of drawing and realising that that was really what I wanted to do um, and I had to work out a way to transition out of where I'd put my energy career-wise for a long time and um yeah work out can I do this how can I make money out of this like is it possible can I <laughs> can I live a life in which I get to draw a lot um so I, I also thought I either need a, need a job that um is just a job you know a job that just pays the bills and doesn't take creative energy and then I can do my creative project on the side or I need to do the drawing like I can't do a really creatively demanding profession and the drawing it, it wasn't going to work out yeah I, I completely understand that last bit especially because so I, I quit my PhD program in the middle of it about two wow. and a half years into it I left my PhD program and part of the reason I think was also that you can't do it with even 99% commitment you have to mm. give it 150% it has <laughs> to be your everything it has to consume you yeah and I wasn't ready for that and just like how you mentioned that you found yourself drawing less and less and you you felt like you were dying a little bit inside it was 
the same for me like i i found myself writing less and less and at that time all my creative ideas were about being a writer and in different kinds of uh, writing formats and that's all i wanted to do and one when as long as i thought i could balance it 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 was smooth sailing so, uh, more or less but when i found that it was cutting into my writing or i didn't have the either the time or the creative energy to do it it just became really difficult for me to uh, and it sort of it sort of let me understand what place it occupied in my life because i used to be good at science and when you're good at things you think okay this is nice why don't do more why not do more and more and you think that it might be your first priority but then when something else is taken away from it you realize how much you do want it and you sort of recalibrate at that moment what you want from from your from your time yeah definitely that's that's very similar to my my understanding yeah <laughs> my yeah. experience yeah uh, t- uh, i'm curious though tell me a little bit about uh, human geography tell me a little bit about the kind of research you were doing in your phd program what was it was it specifically about a part of the world so yes yeah, so i i'd always traveled so much and i think i w- i was actually working at a university in china prior to starting my phd um and i decided that I should do my PhD about Australia where I was from because I just felt like I well I felt very colonial kind of doing it about somewhere else and I also just thought I should try harder to find where I come from more interesting than I do <laughs> which I think was um not a great idea to be honest because I don't think I ever did find it as interesting as I find other places um but I tried really hard so anyway it was about Melbourne in Australia and it was about trees in the city and it was retelling kind of the story of Melbourne with trees as the central characters so kind of looking back into the historical record for trees and seeing what do they tell us about i guess the human experience of the city and life and how did the city grow in relation to trees over time so it's a bit bit obscure and a little bit um peculiar i think outside of academic world but it was um kind of in the in the world of i think they call them more than human geographies where you're trying to really put um things other than people or other than white men at the center of stories of the past and i think um it was yeah very it was it was kind of interesting i think other people found it seemed to find it more interesting than i did but it, it i finished it and it was uh satisfying and i i i learned a lot um and i think i ended up delving into the past as my way to get interested in my own city because i wasn't finding the contemporary place interesting but when i went back in time i was like oh it's like traveling almost because you it was a very different world back in you know when yeah so yeah and and a lot of it seems to be about so i've just incidentally i've read a little bit about trees recently and okay. read means half an article about trees in cities incidentally so uh, uh, your your phd uh, sounds a bit like how how we as humans use trees in our environment whether out of uh just the things that grow around us indigenously and then you know the aesthetic and other qualities by which we designate certain trees for certain parts of the city uh 
according to various factors. So one thing I learned, and this exposes exactly how little I knew about trees, is that there are male and female trees. Yeah. <laughs> I, have... I, don't, I don't actually know that much about the biology of trees, to be honest. So that's something that's also funny. I talk about that in my PhD and everyone wants to know what tree they should plant in what place. And I have no idea. But that that is true. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I was just amazed that firstly, I was amazed that this happens. And secondly, I was amazed that it didn't occur to me until now that maybe it sounds so obvious. So female trees are the ones that bear fruit. Is that is that correct? I think so. But again, I'm not, I'm not a, um, so the little bit that I read was saying that, uh, in cities we plant male trees. And the reason for that is that you don't want, uh, trees to be bearing fruit and then the fruit to fall and to, you know, to over ripen on the street and cause a mess. And then that you have to clean it, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is definitely true. They, they never like trees that make a mess. For whatever reason, yeah. So what are some, that's, uh, it makes me curious, what are some factors? How does a city that's uh, growing and then you have, you have this, uh, this government that's in the urban planning, let's say, on, on what basis do you select what kind of trees you want in a certain part of the city? Well, so I think what was really interesting to me and what, in what I did was more, um, the way people thought about the trees. So I think it was really interesting that early on in Melbourne's history, and it was the same all over the world, they believed trees were essential to human health. So they just believed they were just a fundamental part of creating an urban space that was healthy for humans to live in. Um, And that was often due to that they hadn't yet discovered um, bacteria or... um, what do you call it microbes so they hadn't they hadn't they didn't know how disease spread so they used to think they used to call it miasmas and think things wafted through the the air the air exactly exactly and so trees were seen as like the antidote to miasma and thus the healthy thing so they'd plant them especially in low-lying areas with anything swampy or they wanted to use them to sort of clean up the miasma and also clean the air in general so they were very um they were sort of the the lungs of the city I suppose was was seen very early on in the history of cities and people that that was a really important thing so I think I was really interested how that shifted over time um because as sort of city as I suppose history grew and we discovered things like microbes and more details about disease trees got less important and people started to revere them less and value them less and care more about things like them dropping fruit or making a mess or their roots ripping up pavements or all of that became much more of a priority because they were no longer considered kind of essential to human well-being and health and then I think there's a bit of a push in the last decade perhaps or maybe even 20 years now of that reminding everyone hang on they're really important to human health (laughs) like we really need them to um, kind of make urban places places that are healthy to be in and happy to be in and psychologically um, nice places to be in so I think both mental and physical health there's been a real revival of that so it's it's sort of a I mean I, I get very interested in the history of science and the way it evolves over time and then interacts with the way that physical spaces get built, I suppose, and what they yeah. look like. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. For like, uh, th- there's a time when there was this reverence for everything that we could build, and for the longest time, the I think the psychology was a bit like about man conquering nature and being above nature in a way. And now, of course, to our great peril, we're realizing that we we can't really do that. And <laughs> the, the 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 alternative movement is that we need to sort of bow down in front of it and have uh, give nature its space. Mm. Um. Uh, another thing I was thinking about with trees actually was how we sort of we think of it as something that's that's premium real estate. Like I think mm-hmm. about where like parts of cities that have parks and have trees and the parts of cities that don't, that also kind of reflects very intentional choices about what we uh, who which part of the city deserves green spaces and which part does not. Yes, that is very true and true all over the world. And it's definitely, um, yeah, the, the leafier areas are wealthier. It's it's a very real pattern. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And although the idea of miasmas is, of course, misplaced, but if we think of it as uh, feeling better around trees, and that's mm. a very real thing, that yeah. we feel better around greenery, Miasma is a useful model to mm. kind of accept, to to sort of describe that that same thing, that same intangible feeling of being uh, around greenery and how that makes us better feel better. Mm. Yeah, completely agree. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> bring back miasma. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, so, as an engineer, I studied control engineering, and there was this interesting quote that a professor said, and he was talking purely about the engineering side of things. He was just talking about the physics. But even at that moment, instantly, it occurred to me that this is something that is useful for all of life. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said that uh, all models are wrong, but some models are useful. Yeah. <laughs> so he was talking about how everything we make, we model, we simplify, we linearize things. And even the most basic laws are only applicable within certain boundaries. Mm-hmm. So they are essentially wrong models, but they are nonetheless within boundaries, very, very useful. So mm-hmm. uh, I think about that with respect to the various philosophies people might believe in or the religions mm-hmm. or the gods they might believe in, that it might not be literally true, but if you believe it's true, it might be useful. Maybe mm-hmm. it dictates your behavior. Maybe it dictates your behavior towards other people. And uh, maybe it makes you a braver person or a more compassionate person. Who knows? It's possible that it's still useful even if it's wrong. And same. Uh, that's what I was thinking about with mm-hmm. miasma is that uh, if it makes you revere trees more, then maybe it's helpful. Yeah, I, I agree with all of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, a little bit more about uh, uh, like about the geography part. Um, so I'm always curious about how this kind of informed knowledge about cities and about how cities are being laid out, how that manifests in people's work or their admiration for cities. So my example is that uh, some time ago, I spoke to Liz Steele, who's a fellow Aussie, and she used to be an architect. And we were talking about how having formal formal knowledge of the history of architecture with respect to popular monuments, but also with respect to just generally how a city is laid out and how the architecture of that city talks about the unique conditions of that city. And knowing these things gives you another layer of appreciation for the place that you're observing, whether you're observing it just as a tourist or as a photographer or as an artist. So with your education and your research in mind, 
what is an advantage that you find that it gives you in the kind of things that you try to do today? That's a great question. I think I feel like lots of my research was really about trying to see the stories in places that aren't usually told. So I think, you know, every city has probably had books written about it, but for every book written, you know, there's a thousand that could be written that aren't. And I think the the sort of looking at a city or a place in the way that my training did, I think, trained me to hunt for stories. And I think that when I draw or I, um, yeah, even urban sketching, I'd say for me is always a hunt for the story of the place and not just that building that I can see right there. But I think when I look at the building, I do sort of think about its age, think about its relationship to if there are trees around or the the hillside and the shapes and the, the kinds of buildings in different spots. I do think it helps me hunt for the, the story, which I, and I, in my mind, a, a good image is one that tells a story. <laughs> so be that a photo or a or a drawing, or an illustration, or an urban sketch. I, my favourite always suggests a story, or it's it's not that there's, it's a sequential image, it's more just that within that single image, it makes someone wonder what happened before, what happened after, or where's that person going, like, you know, what what time is it, what is, like, it just suggestive of, of something bigger than just what you can see. So Yeah. Yeah. And in your work, I also find that nature plays a very significant role, uh, whether it's water bodies or trees or even just uh, grass and overgrown grass in these uh, non-urban locations that you sometimes sketch and paint. Um, so is is it something that you're thinking about, about how that plays a role in people's lives or how that makes people feel? Is, is that something that's uh, important to you? I think it's about how I feel, <laughs> which is maybe, so I think it's, um, I definitely search for beauty in places as well as the story. And I think that's true of whatever the place is. Like if it's, you know, even quite a boring urban street, if I am going to draw it, like say if you're out with urban sketches and it might not be where I would choose to draw, but it's, um, the place that is chosen, I think the the part of where you are that you choose to draw or that I would choose to draw would be for me the part I would find most beautiful. And usually for me that does have some kind of um, organic element. So I think it's not necessarily that it would be plant life, but I do, I like I love, I'd pick a crooked building any day over a straight building or a like a really kind of weathered thing over the the shiny thing or um and I'd say that that's probably where plant life and trees and and fits for me it's like the um the really joyful free bit of the drawing that often can uh I suppose even um what do you call it uh oppose the really hard line so I, I love the the contrast is between like the organic and the inorganic and the kind of um the bits that feel like they're much more temporal like short-lived like a like the grass versus the building behind it that might have been there for 
a really long time. And the same in the city. I often love how a tree might have been there for, you know, way before the, the buildings around it. And so that, that sense of different temporal scales, I, I enjoy yeah. that contrast in a picture. Yeah, yeah. And and that this sense of the temporal scale already informs, it, it comes from your idea of, of these temporal scales that the fact that they exist mm. and it's such a it's such a, a good reflection of your education and your research in this way that you're aware of of the land and of the space as as it exists over hundreds of years and not just as you see it in this moment and uh, that that's a very that's a very beautiful aspect of it um so uh, tell me a little bit about so after after studying these things and you 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 know all of these things but you also started working as a graphic designer and i'm curious to know was that like a path of self education for you how how did how did this happen how did this interest from drawing to graphic design happen for you so i think so i was in mongolia with uh, my husband was working and i was supposed to be writing the book um, and instead I drew every day and I also taught myself the Adobe Creative Suite or heaps of it. So um, I think I, I'm quite a practical person and I've also always kind of, I knew I needed to earn money and I, I knew that it might be a long haul um, before I could earn money purely off drawing. Um, I also I also love design. I love beautifully designed book covers like beautiful fonts beautiful um you know posters and then after Mongolia I actually did another I did a volunteer job um with the Australian government but posted in Nepal and I was working at a um university for social work um supposed to be teaching research methods but it ended up that we did a lot of um, making things. So we made a lot of posters and a lot of T-shirts and a lot of – so. and I found that I got to test some of the Adobe suite skills that I'd learnt, taught myself in Mongolia and Nepal, and I had this wonderful um, experience there getting to work with people developing products really for the school um, that were design-based. So this, this project that was supposed to be academic turned into design and then I ended up with enough skills that when we moved back to Australia after that, um, I managed to get a job. A, just It was a two-day-a-week job at a um, not-for-profit in Melbourne doing as their graphic designer. Um, and so that was just perfect because it gave me two days a week of income and I learned an incredible amount and um, really got to make some wonderful things for them um, during that time. So it, for me, it was a bit of a strategic um, move to try and shift out of that. I, I really didn't want to study again. So I was, I think I'd spent so many years of my life in universities and I, I was like, I just don't like as much as, you know, I, I'm like I could go back and study illustration, I could go back and study design, but I was like I just I just don't want to like there's no way I want to write an essay about something. Like I'm like I've marked so many essays, like I'm not going back to scratch, you know. And so I did really quite strategically try and think how can I transition. Um so I, I really used all of the creative skills I had at my to try and just make ends meet, I suppose, for quite a while. And um photography was the third 
so I also worked as a wedding photographer um mostly for money but I did really enjoy that as well so um I yeah I I feel like I just tried to shift from academia to being a visual creative and that involved a whole suite of the visual tools so not just drawing yeah yeah and uh, I want to sort of uh go a little deeper into these different skills that you then need to acquire because I had that same kind of shift moving from academia to a creative field and trying to do it uh, full-time meant that I had these a unique set of challenges. One of them was that I suddenly lost any way to measure my progress, mm. especially in a self-education field and say you're working for clients or whatever. It's very tough to now assess what is a good day's work. And what is a good week of work? Was that a challenge for you, not having quantifiable or measurable uh, goals so much? Um, I think at the start for me, a bigger challenge was um, leaving behind the prestige of the academic, or I don't even know if it was prestige, but for me, I think I, I never would have thought I would have even cared about that. But then... I realized how much of my ego was tied into being really successful. And I think I, the first years trying to do this, I, I mean, I was a little bit successful, I was successful enough, but I look back at things I made then and I'm like, Oh, they're not, they're not great. They're like, but um, I definitely felt like a beginner and I felt um, uncomfortable about that. I would say for quite some time. And I think, so that was a big challenge for me was, uh, continuing on with it despite knowing that probably what I was making wasn't up to my standards and I knew I had to keep trying um, but I was very driven and I also I'd also fallen in love with my work in a way that I had never did with academia so I'd I'd also find that my days were spent so happily like I'd I'd get to the end of each day and I'd be like oh my god it's the end of the day like I've not looked at the clock I've not like I've kind of really just loved choosing the right color <laughs> for this thing you know like it, it it blew my mind actually how how at home I felt even when it was a struggle so I think the the, the feeling like I was in the right place despite perhaps not having the enough skills yet I think mm-hmm. was essential to helping me overcome that feeling of um not being so skilled as I was used to feeling at my work yeah 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 there's a sense of uh like uh I was just speaking about this yesterday with someone that it's the analogy that I used was that it's like you're switching between two ladders and there's one ladder that you've climbed a certain uh, uh, path up and now you're switching to another ladder and you're sort of near the bottom of it not maybe Mm. not exactly at the bottom but far below than you were on the other and that makes you feel very different all of a sudden and sometimes just the notion of making that kind of change is too overwhelming for people and Mm. they end up never taking that kind of decision I also completely resonate with what you say about not wanting to sit in a classroom again which is exactly how I felt when I (laughs) I needed to acquire these skills and a lot of people around me recommended studying it go to university again study design or art or drawing or illustration and I was absolutely clear that I don't want to sit in a classroom I can't do it after so many years and after being on the other side of the classroom you know giving a talk I can't I can't sit for two hours and listen to someone anymore I have to do it myself 
part of the PhD program, so much of it is self-education anyway. You do so much research, which is just self-motivated and your own exploration. And I guess there's a sense of feeling that you have the tools, you have the ability Mm. to do that kind of thing. It's just about acquiring the knowledge and then working on it again, sort of like a PhD program, right? Oh, definitely. And I think for me, it's when I'm happiest, I would say as well, when I'm learning something new like that, like I think I have a tendency to get bored with things quite quickly. And I think it's it's certainly, I'm definitely one of those people, if someone says, can you do this? I'm more likely to say yes, and then work it out. <laughs> Even if inside, I'm like, I have no idea how to do that. But I, I, I get a lot out of the challenge of, of learning how to do it and usually it works out (laughs) yeah 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 actually this is exactly what I wanted to ask you next that when you're working as a self-educated designer you're always on this path of self-education and actually the best way you learn is by getting these jobs to do Mm. and so in a sense you're learning on the job and the job is an opportunity to push a little bit further in all of your different comfort zones or in every direction. So um, I'm thinking about, so the Adobe Creative Suit is a technical, there's a, firstly knowing how to use it is a very technical skill, but there are also so many non-technical skills associated. Now you've been drawing forever, but nonetheless, things about how colors work and how design works. What did you do about that? How did you like, were there, were there references from your childhood that you would use? Were there uh, different things you would find online? How how did you go about building a sense for design and colors and things like that? I think it might just be something I have in me. Like I don't I don't know if that's wrong to say, and I think you definitely um, improve it over time. And it's certainly something that I feel like I'm always um, developing, but. I do think there's a certain, um, there's an eye for things, which I think is maybe innate or maybe practiced, but I've also always taken photos. So I think the, um, for me, photography for many years was such a big part of seeing the world. And I think that when you take a photo, the, the, the main thing you're doing is putting the three-dimensional world into two dimensions and choosing a focal point and choosing an emphasis and thinking about light or where the colour. And so I actually think my my photography was more developed than my design at this point. So I would say that the photography and years of taking photos and really, really, um, I think that might have been the greatest input into helping me say design a brochure or a poster or a t-shirt I think that that sort of intuitive idea of composition and and the power of um of just where you put something in a two-dimensional spot on a page like what what that does I think I think that's huge for design I think you can completely change the story or the feeling or the the look of a piece just by moving the horizon line to the top or or whatever or putting the main emphasis in a weird spot or shifting it off the side or like like so I suppose I think I think my sense of the power of a good image came from many years of taking photos and I think I'd done that ever since I started traveling really when I was I was young like I've I've traveled through many countries and always with a camera until 
probably recently when I'm more likely to have my sketchbook. But um, it's <laughs> I think I do think that 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 perhaps was the greatest influence on my design was I think composition was my strong point from the start, and I think the other things probably grew alongside that. Yeah, yeah. I always find this to be the case that. Uh, creativity in one field always informs and influences creativity and skill building in other fields. So sometimes the job of learning composition doesn't simply mean you read books about that subject. It means simply that you do, you exercise your creativity in different media, in different fields, and laterally almost think about composition. And for example, I'm just uh, thinking off the top of my head, uh, doing somebody's wedding photographs means you have a certain set of requirements and obligations upon you about things that need to be centered, about subjects that are important. And then your work is with respect to that. And then when you take pictures for yourself, again, the requirements are off. You have a different set of obligations and responsibilities. And then you uh, you calibrate yourself a little bit with that. And if you're always trying to educate yourself, if you're always trying to learn, the best thing is that you're always open to these things. You're always absorbing more and more lessons from even these little mundane things you might even do on autopilot. You will always look for these little lessons within it and then be in a position, hopefully, to apply it again. Yeah, I think it's true. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, speaking more about self-education, I was really fascinated to read on your blog that uh, you pursued an online course to learn more about children's illustration. So before we go into the course itself, uh, I want to know what inspired this interest. How uh, Were you always interested in the style of illustration that goes into children's books? Was it something that excited you when you were young? Yeah, so I would say that through my whole life had someone at any point of it asked me what would you do if you could have done anything like you know if if you had your time again or if money were no object or if you know what would you do and I would have always said children's book illustrating I think so it has definitely been um a dream I suppose from when I was little and I know my little you know 10 year old or 8 year old me would have been very pleased with the fact that I'm doing that today so I feel like that that is a good outcome but I think that um I just never believed I could so I think I always thought of it as as like the dream thing that some lucky person somewhere got to do but you had to be amazing or you had to be someone special or you had to have made drawn stories like that from when you were a tiny kid or um and I didn't I just never believed I could be that person and I think it it took a, a lot of well, a lot of crises really of other things to kind of make me realize that life's so short and like why could it not be me you know <laughs> um and but it that that lesson was a long time coming and I think a lot I, I think a lot of it also I've, I've always been really good at I've always found it not difficult to create a likeness from what I see in the world like to draw something really realistically you know, when I was young, that was what I used to always do was draw portraits of everyone or and I could make it look exactly like the person and, and all of those. That was sort of the skill that when I was a kid was valued and um, something that's come easily to me, whereas I've never, I, I'd never until probably a few years ago felt like I was able to draw from imagination or draw from memory even or um, from like 
yeah, I think that's been something that my confidence really has I really like the confidence that I could do that and I think it, it makes me laugh because lots of people say oh I can't draw and I've always been the first one to say it's just because you don't draw if you did draw you could draw but I think I really believed that I couldn't draw from imagination or I couldn't draw with that lovely free feeling of it all just coming from inside your head onto the paper that I really had to have references in the world or from photos or life or whatever and um and I never really liked drawings from photos I think they're it's hard for them to have life um so I I kind of had a, for a long time just sort of just thought it it wasn't something I could do um but I'd always been curious and I think I ended up deciding that I may as well give it a go <laughs> and that was when I I sort of started to seek out um, some help I suppose like where like what does it even look like how would I begin what what um and that's when I found that online course that you've mentioned yeah and uh, uh I, I'd love to know more about it tell me a little bit about the course tell me about the kind of expectations you entered it with and how did you like how did you zero in on choosing one because there, there are so many yeah, I think that's a good, really good question. I I really wanted to understand the industry and I really wanted to understand how one would, what would a folio look like that I needed to give to a, a art director or a publisher in order for them to pick me to be the one to illustrate the book. Um, and I feel like there's lots of courses that... Um, maybe focus on character development or on um, various even style-based things. But this was the one, the only one I found that seemed to really go into what, what are art directors looking for, what exactly do you need to have in your folio to get the attention of an art director. Um, and it also had a lot of really... Um, it's it's not a cult, but it's it's got a lot of the, these courses have a, a a big following, and a lot of people seem to get very successful off that, and you, and I could see that. So I suppose I thought they're, they're quite expensive, so it did take me a long time to make the decision to sign up. Um, and it's it, so the the course is um, the makeup that sells um, children, illustrating children's book course run by Lila Rogers, who's an agent in the US. Um, and it's interesting because the style of work that she likes or that is encouraged in the course is not really something that appeals to me, but the lots of the other elements really did. And so I, I went in hoping, I suppose, to learn um, what what I need to do to get a folio that would appeal to an art director and also but with the curiosity of actually not knowing at all whether I could do it. Like I was actually, it was a very curious attempt really where I was like, oh, my gosh, I I have no idea if I can make a character. I would have never drew, tried to draw a character before. I would have, I've drawn thousands of people on the street and, you know, thousands of figures in life drawing classes. And But I'd, I'd never tried to like draw one person and then draw them running and then draw them sad and then draw them like happy or sleeping or from the back or upside down like I'd never tried to 
do that and I actually didn't know if I could. So the I actually did the course twice and the first time I just learnt a lot really and um, but I realised I could draw a character and I could make them do all those things and I, I got incredibly excited by that. I, I couldn't believe the power of and the joy I found in being able to bring to life a character and a world for that character to exist in and, you know, clothes for that character to wear, places for them to live, friends they could have, emotion, story, like a history. I I just, um, it blew me away how much I liked it um, and I was quite bad at it, I think, the first time round, and the, the second time round, I felt more competent but I don't really like the work I made. So I think there was um, quite a process after, I suppose, learning the um, foundations before I found, I suppose, something of my way within those parameters. Um, And I think I'm still finding that, like I'm really still looking for that. Um, So I guess it's that that sort of... um, There's quite a gap between the beautiful freedom of drawing someone walk past and just that getting the essence of that person to to creating a character and the character it's it's quite hard i think to get a character to have the same free life and um not contrived and and kind of as um as as nice as i i don't know i might, i still usually enjoy the characters i draw from the world better than the characters i create for books but i'm getting closer i think so I'm, i think it's a, it's an ongoing challenge to make illustrations that make me as happy as or, or that i'm as pleased with as i suppose my life drawing um but this this course definitely taught me heaps about the industry and did get me a folio that did get me my first book <laughs> so it was incredibly successful in that way yeah yeah and uh, i completely resonate with uh, with what you're saying there's the sense of closing this gap um, there's a very popular quote by ira glass about it and he says about and i'm not quoting it i'm sort of paraphrasing it he talks about how uh, there's a uh, the, uh, like your sense for how good your art needs to be increases at a faster rate than your actual skills at making that art so you are always conscious of what you couldn't do in the piece that you made the the ways that it kind of failed to uh, to check a box that you had in your mind because the more we absorb art the more we look at beautiful things the better ideas we get and the better our mental image of what our, what what our work needs to be becomes so there's this gap and that gap has to be closed and we do more and more work in the hope that we are able to get closer to you know to to closing that gap um i'm also sort of in that position before your course where i have this belief that i cannot draw from my imagination i i've drawn hundreds and thousands of people from observation but the prospect of creating a character and like you mentioned a consistent character who is doing lots of different things with lots of different moods in different settings is so daunting to me i can't imagine doing that and i've tried to do it for comics before and it's just taken me of a, a monumental amount of effort so having been in that same place before what are what are some things that you think were hobbling you or that were kind of being obstacles in your way that didn't need to be there that you know your skill already was beyond the point where you needed where you didn't where that thing didn't need to obstruct you but it did 
Um, I think the well, I think there's there's this danger when you're good at drawing from life that um you usually make work that looks quite good, you know, like you usually like that gap is 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 not that big when you've been practicing something for a long time or it's it's you've already closed it a lot, I guess. And I suppose that I think I think to do more character based illustrative work for me anyway, I have to make a lot of stuff that looks awful <laughs> before I get something that I'm happy with. So I end up with sketchbooks and pages and pages of really awful, like really quite like stuff I hate to look back at and I chuck out like um and my say my urban sketches and things don't offend me with that same <laughs> same power. Like I think it doesn't mean they're all great mm-hmm. and I, I like some more than others, but I think for me to make a character work and to to work from imagination, I have to make more work I hate before I get to a place that I like. And I think um, p- continuing to um, do it despite the ugly bits that you need to do to get to the good bits, I think is is a really big challenge. And I think, I mean, I think Ira Glass talks about that too. That most people give up, which is the problem because they get hit with the sort of I suppose the that gap and don't make any more so I think for me if I was I I always try I mean I still try and remember it it's just to keep going because you will get somewhere that is at least good enough for now I think it's also you also I think can't be a perfectionist um to successfully challenge yourself in this way because I think you destroy yourself like I I you know, I, I'm making a book at the moment and because it, 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 it takes so long to make a children's book from the start to the end. By the end, you look at the things you've done at the start and you're like, oh, I wish they were better. I can't. Like I need to. And, you know, you can fix them a bit, but you, you can't kind of keep redoing the book every time you're eight months, like after the time you started it. You can't start it again. You know, you'll never get to the end. So so you have to be a bit more f- you have to be quite forgiving of of yourself in a way, which I think um, can be a real challenge, and and just let it let it be, even if it's not fabulous. But I, for me, I think the the thing that helps is the joy of it and the fun of it. Like I do get overwhelmed with joy and um, just happiness making this stuff. That that also helps push past. I think. The, the fear-based worrying or the or the hesitating because the character's looking awful again or I'm trying to make it cry and he looks like he's dying. Like like you, you kind of, you know, it's the, the, the joy I get from making it helps overcome, I suppose, those other, other fears and things which I think can be really limiting because I think the lack of lack of confidence and also hoping to be good straight away is... is um, I think most people's greatest problem in getting to where they want to go, wherever that is, I think it's it's really hard to be bad at something and it's really hard to make, especially I think visually it's so hard to make visual things that you think are ugly and keep mm-hmm. making them. <laughs> but you have to, like you, <laughs> you just have to. It's, you, you can't, um, if you, if you want to do this, you can't stop. You, you, know, you can't let that stop you. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's that's such a good point. Like uh, this embracing or accepting failure is a very key part of this creative process. And 
uh, the better you get at something, the more you shy away from moments that could mm. make you feel like you're failing. So urban sketching or drawing on location becomes this comfortable thing that makes that uh, gives me instant gratification. Mm. Like I just an hour's work and it's the best work I could have done. And look how good it is. And it's great. And why should I, why should I then struggle mm. for over drafts and drafts and drafts of something that doesn't do that for me? But this sort of uh, understanding of, of, well, is delayed gratification the word for it? Like just having that patience that something is going to pay off over time and that there is something you're going to produce, which, which is going to be, which is going to involve necessarily a lot of bad drawings. And there's no way out mm. of it that you can't just be so good that you never have the bad yeah. drawings. You're always going to have the bad drawings, right? So this creative process is, it's, it's brutal, yeah. <laughs> but it's fascinating. <laughs> so there's this quote that I want to read out from your, from your website. You said that to create a new world, a whole new world from a blank piece of paper to make someone smile or see something that they see every day in a brand new way is such a privilege. Uh, unquote and yeah I absolutely I absolutely resonate with this um, speaking about the creative process my previous guest was also an illustrator and he has a really nice quote which I want to add to this quote of yours he said that uh, illustration is applied imagination and I really loved that quote and all the things it means uh, how, how does it sound to you is it something you relate with and if so how does how does it play into your work illustration being applied imagination yeah I mean I think it's it's very true I um I think so I, I'll just go back a bit so I think my throughout my life I've always drawn and I've always thought that drawing itself well for years I thought that drawing itself was kind of nothing like I I used to go to you know, life drawing classes just because I liked to go and I just wanted to draw. Um, and at this point I'd never heard of urban sketching or urban sketches and I remember being in a class and someone saying to me, oh, what do you do? Like, who are you? Like, do you, and, and they meant do I paint or am I a printmaker or like what art do I make from my drawings, you know? And I was like, oh, I just draw. Like I kind of didn't and, – and I think I always thought that I was um, – that I didn't really do anything because I just drew like it wasn't a thing on its own you know and I I remember when I discovered urban sketching and urban sketches being just so um I I couldn't believe it like I couldn't believe there was this group of people and they just drew and they 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 you know they did it together or alone or but but the the whole goal was just to sit in a place and draw what you see and and like for me it 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 was everything and I think it it's still my favorite thing to do and it's still sort of the most um incredibly peaceful and exciting thing to do for me in terms of drawing but I think I I found it really interesting when I um when in lockdown last year when we couldn't urban sketch really like we could we were stuck in the house and we weren't allowed to sit outside so you and you weren't allowed to really stop you had to keep walking and so it was you could have drawn walking but you couldn't and so I, I was going a bit crazy and I kept drawing different corners of the house and I was drawing the views from the rooms in the house and I was like oh and then I was getting really depressed and the I hate this and then I think I that was when I think a real switch for me happened in terms of the 
I suppose, applied imagination and the kind of sense of um, using all the the skills I had from urban sketching but taking it a little bit further or a little bit because I, I sat there in, in my house and, God, I wish the sea was out the window or there was like a city. So I started to draw all of the um, places I would rather be. So all the windows I would rather be in front of or all the houses I would rather be locked down in or um, all of the kind of, I started, I suppose, to really, really work my imagination in my drawing in a way I hadn't before. Um, and I, I credit lockdown to that because I, I think I made a really big breakthrough just internally. It might not even be evident in my work, but in that that real feeling of um, of what it meant to illustrate. Like I think I've always been able to say draw a, you know, the, a page or birds or, you know, I'd even done a book at this point, like my first children's book, but I hadn't really felt that sense of it be of, of illustration being applied imagination, I don't think, until I, I sat in lockdown desperate to be drawing, desperately to be in London or out in the streets drawing the city and I couldn't and I suddenly realised I could apply my imagination and illustrate anything like I could and and I think I think although I sort of had the sense of that with the children's book I, I was performing it in a way for the purpose of the book and for the first time this it really came from something within me that I was like I had to escape my situation and I could really um, apply my imagination to create an illustration um that could let me escape <laughs> escape our very prison-like existence that seemed to go on and on and on um so that that's what that quote made me think of which I don't it's a bit of a long-winded story but yeah yeah but but so true like this kind of adversity has really pushed us to to find something more in ourselves like the longer that lockdown stretched um, I, I once the, the day that I ran out, I remember the day that I ran out of things to sketch in the house and I'd done all the window views and I'd done all the corners. And now I was just sitting with my sketchbook and drawing my feet and just thinking, how long is yeah. this going to last? <laughs> like, I need to do something. But that's you like almost you feel like that kind of extreme situation. It pushes you to discover something in yourself. And so uh, this is a very lateral connection, but there's this thought that I uh, share with uh, some participants in my workshop that I, I draw only with one pen and I have a sketchbook and that's it. I don't have any more tools with me. So in a lot of ways, I'm constrained. Much like how we are in lockdown, we are constrained mm -hmm. with our choice of views. So when I'm sketching outside, I'm constrained with my tools. I don't have more tools and I don't have any colors on me, no brushes. Mm -hmm. So I can only lay down the world I see in a certain way. And there's this idea that that's so limiting. If you're constrained, you're not free to do all the things you could, and therefore you are limited, you are chained. But uh, the argument I make is that within constraints is where you find freedom. Mm -hmm. That when you have these constraints on you, when you can't do the things, all, or you, you can't exercise the infinite choices, that's when you dig deeper and you find something more. You push yourself to discover something within those constraints. Mm. So, yeah, completely agree with that. And I, it really resonates with me too. I think even um, kind of getting drawing again after so many years of 
not drawing when I was in Mongolia. I think that sense of just having a pen and the paper, that's what gave me a daily habit. That's what made it possible for me to, that's what, yeah, that, that limited toolbox and just working really hard, what you can do with that, I think is leads to incredible creativity. And I think as well, I think it's why I like design and I like client work is for a really similar reason. I I really love working to a brief and I, I really enjoy creating something within the parameters that what the project sets for that. I think it's um incredibly liberating and I think you learn a lot and end up making work that you never otherwise would have made and yeah, really, really pushes uh yeah, it's very challenging in in a positive way I, I find I'm not someone who's itching to get free of those parameters I really like them as well I really yeah yeah, yeah exactly so well put so again thinking about the imagination aspect now I'm thinking about your different interests uh, there's drawing on location there's illustrations you make from imagination there's photography and there's travel so what are some ways that these different things they help you to feed and to grow and to strengthen your sense of imagination how how do they play with each other all these different interests yeah so i think um in terms of inspiration and i think travel is my big love and my big passion and i think it's just that very normal thing when you're in a new place you see it so overwhelmingly richly like it's it just kind of blows your mind or the the way that light is different and the colors are different and buildings are different so so I suppose you can you're very I'm very excited when I'm in a new place to make things it just um so that it it creates a lot of um motivation and I think it also with it it um has created a real love of place for me so I think I am very um obsessed with places and the feelings of places and you know, I, I I hate being in places that I don't like and I love being in places that I like. So I have a real, it really, I suppose, passionate relationship with places. And I think that that really feeds my illustration because I think that um, the places, I suppose, that I love or the have have an atmosphere about them or or a feeling about them which I really try to um tap into and pay attention to and um I suppose like absorb and pop into kind of a tool or a, an image bank in my mind and I think that um when I want to illustrate something I think the first sort of thing that I go to in my mind is is often a place that I've been or a place that I would like to go and can I possibly set this book in that place or like this spread in that place or this and and what is it about that place that um, feels like magic to me like you know is it the light is it the kinds of buildings is it the um you know the the angles of the streets or the the shapes of the the hills or like like what are the characteristics that really make this place atmospheric and rich um and i think yes that that is often where i would begin an illustration would be from that perspective i usually i think usually you start a children's book with um characters um 
but I really struggle to think of characters independent of place. So I might not show the publisher the the places that I'm imagining that come with the characters. But for me, I have to start thinking, where are these, like, where are these people? You know, what what is their world look like? And I, and um, I think that has come from travel, and I I think really um, loving the differences of places and and this the things that make a place special. And I, I, I think in an illustration I really like to capture that or the bits of that that for me make something magic or um, really appealing or interesting or, yeah, whatever it may be. And then I think the photography really helps with a bit later on with setting up the page. So trying to think about how you best give the spread the emotion that you want or the um even an urban sketch I think I do these same things like when I sit down in the street I first try and think which bit am I most interested in and then what is it is it the light is it the way the the people are all walking around one corner in the same direction and like where are they going and why and and then I think my photography helps me go okay well where should like if that's the interesting bit where should that go on the on my page so that that's the sort of essence of the story of this image um yeah I don't know (laughs) yeah (laughs) let me take a short break at this point so I can thank my sponsors the Sneaky Art Podcast is 100% independent and listener-funded, which means my sponsors are listeners just like yourself. So I'm quite happy to take a minute to thank them on the air because without them, I would really not be able to do this. You see, I do all the work around this show myself. Uh, tasks include emailing potential guests, hearing back, sometimes not hearing back, <laughs> moving on, <laughs> deciding topics of conversation, actually having that conversation, and this is just the easy stuff. The real grind comes in the editing stage, and in writing out these words, such as the ones that I'm saying right now. Although I enjoy doing all of it, it would really not be possible to keep at it with the quality and the care and the attention that I like to give my work without the support of my listeners. So if you like this episode, or if I've said something that has helped you in any way, support my work. It's really simple to do so. All you have to do is buy me a coffee. You can find the link in the show notes to my buy me a coffee page, and you can choose to buy me one, two, or three coffees, and also take the chance to start a conversation. I would really love to hear from you. And you would also receive a shout out during the next episode. So coming to that. I would like to thank Megan, Mark, Emma, Becky, Martha, Ruth, Etienne, Deborah, Vinayakam, Anne, Mark, Russ, Sanket, Santosh, Dinah, Martha, Ellen, Ashley, Kate, Mike, Molly, Melanie, Annie, Henrico, Rohit, as well as a couple of anonymous others. I am so grateful to each one of you. In some other exciting news that I really want to share with you, I have just started a whole new adventure. Long-time listeners of the show would know that I also make a free email newsletter called The Sneaky Art Post. On it, I write about my latest art and I share my journey of self-education to become a full-time artist. Well, now 
I'm adding another audio newsletter to it for people that want to support my work every month. And it is called The Sneaky Art Insider. Think of it as a second podcast, only a little more exclusive. I like to think of it as a kind of lab. It is a space for me to try new things, to share my rough ideas, and to solicit feedback from my true fans. For example, sometimes conversations on this show go off on very interesting tangents. My guests give me ideas that spark new ideas and lead me down paths to new things that I want to learn about. On the Insider podcast, I will go a little deeper with some of these interesting rabbit holes. For example, my first post, which I released last week, is about artistic inspiration that I've taken from some recent iPad games that I've played. It was inspired by a point of discussion early in episode 23 with Mark Tarot Holmes. You can listen to that episode, of course, in my episode history. This post, uh, speaking about the games, is free to listen for another couple of weeks. So please check it out before it goes behind the paywall. In my next post, I will be revisiting episode 15, when I spoke with war illustrator George Butler. In the light of recent events in Afghanistan, I will speak about the history of war illustration, which incidentally came to prominence around the first Anglo-Afghan war in late 1830s. I will talk about how war reportage became a thing in the 1800s and share some interesting history and related images. If this kind of thing makes you curious, you might want to check out my Substack. You can find the URL in the episode description or just type out sneakyart.substack.com. Okay, that said, let's resume the conversation with Anna. We talk more about urban sketching in this latter half of the conversation and especially how it ties into her illustration work. Lots, lots of uh, very interesting things that I uh, agree with so much. Like uh, just what you just said about the interesting thing. Uh, I tell people that I like to do this. Uh, and for me, it's partly a function of, so again, constraint. So my my constraint being that I'm also quick. So I don't like to sit at one location for more than an hour in my sketches. And most of my sketches are 30 to 45 minutes. And that sense of, that sense of impatience it makes me zero in on what is the most interesting thing in my scene. And it's sort of this impatience within me in my nature has trained me to be better at spotting the most interesting thing in my scene. And uh, as a consequence, I leap at it first. That's the first thing I'll draw. And then as I put it, uh, as I expressed it to some participants in my workshop recently, I radiate outwards from it, mm. like in a spiral looking at, and things get less and less interesting. Mm -hmm. And as a consequence, I want to spend less and less time on them because I don't care about them so much. So I start from the area, which is the most interesting. I give it the most amount of details because I'm observing it so carefully. And as I radiate outwards, I care less. So I give it less time. Mm -hmm. So I give it less details. And therefore... I sort of direct the attention of my viewer because there's not so much to look at in the periphery. There's mm -hmm. only things to look at at this focus point, And that's where I want you to look. So it sort of plays in with all of these things for me. And I like how that works out. You also said, uh, you mentioned the data bank of images. And that is such a valid point. I just wrote a piece in my uh, weekly newsletter that I send out to my subscribers about how every artist needs to be a librarian mm -hmm. and you need to pick up 
these impressions and images and ideas from everywhere you can and you need to file them away whether it's just in your mind whether you make a database on your computer with photographs and drawings and writings but one way or another you need to be a curator mm. because you have to have these things that you can then pull out when you need them yeah i completely agree i think if i'm ever to start a new project and it's something that i haven't drawn before the first thing i do is go draw it heaps like <laughs> so you know if it's like foxes i'll just go and draw I'll, I'll i usually play videos in slow motion or something if it's like animals that i want to draw so rather than drawing from a photograph where it's really still i try and just draw really quickly from a slow moving um video and i think that's um and i draw it do it heaps until i don't need the video anymore and then I would always try never to use a photo reference in an illustration because I think it kills it. <laughs> and I think drawing drawing on the street you don't you don't need that so much as you have the references from life, but I think say with people I think are a great example because per people walk past, you know. So if you if you want to capture a person often you miss the head or you miss the legs because they're gone so you've got to give them some legs but if you've got a bank of legs in your mind because you've drawn so many legs you can just add them in you don't need to you know stop and get a photo of legs like you can and, and I think yeah. that's um that works I think with urban sketching but definitely my urban sketching feeds heaps into my illustrating because I think it gives me it, it is almost entirely from where I gather my image bank unless I cannot access what I need to illustrate like tigers or foxes or something but if, if it's if it's people or cities or buildings or window shapes or cups or I'd say all of that is completely from in my mind because they're things I've drawn so much that I I'd say I have a suite of you know a hundred different window <laughs> like exactly. things just from drawing different city streets around the world yeah, yeah. I, I tend to call it a vocabulary of shapes. Yeah, beautiful. Uh, that if I've drawn 500 noses, now I just need to pull out one of them yeah. in case I have a subject. And so uh, how I described it in my newsletter was that uh, I'll, when I see somebody, I'll, I'll borrow a head shape from my vocabulary and I will kind of fit it to the person who's in front of me. And if it's different enough, then it becomes a new shape, which gets added to my, quote unquote, mm -hmm. my catalog of head shapes. Uh, otherwise, it's simply what I borrowed from something I saw. And like you mentioned, when people move away, how do you complete the rest of their body? You go to this bank mm -hmm. and you pull out something you've done before and you know what to do. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I, I'm, I'm curious to understand, uh, and you've sort of touched on it already, but I want to uh, go a little deeper into this, about the place that urban sketching occupies in this creative process. And especially when you contrast it with photography, for example, how how do they... How do both of them add their own value? What is the unique value that they both have for you in building this data bank? Um, so I'd say that in terms of building the data bank, I think drawing is much more powerful. So the urban sketching has a much, and drawing from life has a much greater power in the image bank library. And I think that's just because of the... Um, when you sit and observe something for the length of time that it takes to draw it, even if it's two seconds, I think even the way you have to connect your hand to what you see, I think imprints it much more deeply in the mind than the photograph. Um, I think the photography more would add to the 
composition, as, as I think I've said, rather than necessarily an image bank. I think if I've taken a photo of a building, I won't necessarily remember what the windows look like, whereas if I've drawn the building, I will. Those those windows are in my mind, you know. I think it's. I think the photography is really um, also the, the light, like light is kind of the key part of a good photo, and I think that it helps me, photography helps me add light to my illustrations, I think. So in a way, I think it could add to an image bank of light. <laughs> but I think because I find that if I'm doing an urban sketch, I find light much more difficult to capture on the spot really quickly. Like I, I do it, and I, especially with shadow, I think I, I would often use a lot of shadow, but I'm less likely to manage to get the real um, atmosphere of the colour of light, which I think is quite um unique to place and unique to the weather or the the sort of the, the feeling of a place um but no urban sketching I think is key to it, it, I think also that um making the marks on paper when you do it from life is the marks are usually really immediate and urgent and, and have a real um they're, they're under a time pressure usually because I'm like you, I draw very quickly when I'm out on the street usually. I, I would rarely stay more than an hour as well and I uh, and usually shorter and I think that that urgency really helps you, helps me learn um, about how my materials work and how to really get a feeling of something from be it paint or pen or ink or whatever I'm I'm using I think urban sketching really helps me experiment with materials and texture and push um push that in ways that then I think when I go to illustrate and and you don't have that time pressure it can be very easy to get very again very stiff and less fluid and 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 tight um like I think that's probably I'd say most people's biggest frustration as illustrators is they do these beautiful rough sketches and then they try and make a final artwork and it's lost the entire spirit of the beautiful rough sketch and and I have that problem also I mean I think I, I'm trying you know I, I have strategies and ways to try and help maintain that that feeling of freedom in in the final work but I, and I think lots of those come from the having to make marks or making marks out when you're on the street and you're uncomfortable or it's raining or you you're standing up in a corner and and you, and you realize that if you do this with your pen it's really effective or it, it led to a really a certain feeling and and I think I then try and remember those things and I think they they add to a vocabulary of um I suppose emotions in mark making or or feelings in mark making that I then do try to recreate. So often it it does mean that on final artwork, doing very fast final lines on top that are that are not at all um, controlled or careful, or because because you I remember that that sort of learnt um, mark making from out in the world where you're usually yeah really pushed to experiment and um, play a bit more. So I think yeah, yeah. It's it's another case of uh, it strikes me as another case of the constraints producing the better work. Yeah, being on location, the constraint of time, the constraint of weather, 
how comfortable you are the limited tools that you're carrying that day mm-hmm. or the, the size of your sketchbook even all of these constraints end up creating something that's a little bit better and yeah. then we try to recreate that feeling of instinct of uh, being in a state of flow when we do illustrations and that give and take that that friction between the two is very interesting i i actually last week with my other guest i also spoke exactly about this they make a lot of illustrations and also a lot of beautiful on location work and i asked about this tension between the two that one is simply a linear set of things you do and then you get the piece and it's done that's when you're doing on location but you're working again and again and again to do something on illustrations and it becomes like you say it becomes a little too tight a little too stiff so what you mentioned you have some strategies that you sort of mental and i guess also technical strategies that you used to counteract this problem so can you tell me a little bit about that yeah so um so i think some of it is what i said before i often try to finish an illustration with really fast line work on top which i think helps give back some of the urgency and the immediacy that's often in an original sketch so that's one thing i think another thing is um layers of stuff so i feel like if when i work in lots of layers i can make quite messy layers knowing and if i know i can work on top of the layers you can be quite free with each layer and and hope that you can pull it together at the end so um i think that's changed the way i work because i feel like i've i'm trying to um you know like you can't put certain things on top of other things um so i guess it's another issue, another thing of constraint so it it's um change the order that I might do things that I wouldn't have thought to do like often I kind of do a really gray sketch underneath and then I work on top of that and then it means that I can do a really rough sketch still as the heart of the illustration um and act, and not throw it away like it's still there you know and you, and you kind of then can add to it and build on it and kind of I suppose it's almost like um when I first started urban sketching I think I would do only black and white really and lines um and then i remember getting braver and i would bring out one color and i i would add i'd add one bit of color you know and i i used to just add yellow or i'd do the background all yellow behind my people or um and i feel like it's that's a bit how i try and approach an illustration now is i really try and limit the materials almost and add the bare minimum that is required to get it to the end point rather than sitting there at your desk with all your paint and all your things and and knowing because I, I also finish it in photoshop so it's um it's a mix of so my illustration would be a mix of um, handmade paint and ink and then photoshop at the end and so I think you can get very easily overwhelmed by that and polish too much but I think if I really start going right I'm just going to do a layer of like either pencil or graphite or usually light like an ink wash and then on top of that I will add this and um that's something that I'm finding is helping but I would also say that for me this um 
it's a work in progress the the keeping the life of my roughs um into the final artwork is definitely something that I'm still really learning I think as well because with the children's book in particular you you know you might do like five ten rounds of roughs of each page you know and you send in the publisher looks and you you all decide oh no let's change this so so by the time you do the final one you might have done an image I don't know how many times and I think it's so um hard to keep the excitement and joy as well so I think some of it is tricking yourself it's just a meant like it is really convincing yourself that you haven't really done it before like you kind of if you repeat the same thing too much it's very hard to, for it to have life like I think I do I do that even even sketching like if I sometimes I start a scene I draw it and I, I'm like oh this is crap it wasn't what I wanted it to be I'll start I'll do it again but the second one's never any like it's never better I, and I and I feel like it'll only be better if I move or try it from a different place and then it's fresh again but I think recreating or it's rarely occasionally it might be better but it's it's rarely it's very hard I think to just repeat the same thing heaps of times that's supposed to look the same and still enjoy doing it so I think somehow you've got to find I've got to I keep working out how to find the joy of um in it even when you've done it <laughs> so many times yeah. and you kind of like oh my god I don't want to draw this page again <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. I, I like what you said about uh having too many tools at hand it's a way of sort of artificially imposing these constraints mm. upon yourself that I'm only going to work with these many so I do a lot of my digital work on the iPad mm -hmm. and of course now you have hundreds of brush tools mm -hmm. and it's overwhelming you have incredible decision fatigue and yeah. In trying to find the perfect thing, you end up losing this this flow. Now you end up, uh, once you've chosen something after a lot of searching, you want that thing to do the magic for you. Mm -hmm. And that's not that's yeah. not the point. It's counterproductive to do it that way. Um, uh, I, I'm also thinking about, so when you're illustrating for children, there are these very specific uh, impositions on your work. And I already see that a little bit in your urban sketches that your drawings are a little whimsical. The way you treat perspective is a, uh, you're not you're not very loyal to the realistic depiction of perspective. There's a flattening of it, which I think is really good for children's book illustrations. That it's it's a common feature that that kind of intentionally flat look works very nicely. So, what are some things that you've learned over time are good considerations for children's book work do they come to you naturally in your own work or is it something that you like doing as a as a design choice so I actually think one of the hardest things about children's illustration is trying to not make it look like children's illustration so I, I feel like the the illustration I love most for children I think isn't really made for children so it's people making artwork that's really beautiful and really meaningful to them and it tells a story but it in no way is trying to fit a preconceived notion of what is for children or what is what is not for children and I think there's you know so many books in the world that um I think are all bright colours and cutesy and I don't think that has to be what is for children and I in fact all of my favourite children's books are very far from that so I think if anything it's almost the other way like I think the 
I think trying to find a voice that um, is publishable, but that is also really true to me and what I like and mm-hmm. what the way I see the world is actually the key feature and almost the struggle rather than what, how to tailor it best for children. Like I actually think it's almost about not tailoring it for children because it's so easy to create something contrived because you decide it's for children's books and therefore should look a certain way. And I think all the best children's books and the most beautiful children's illustration, like the the thing they all have in common, I think, is they don't do that. They really um, stay true to the artist's feeling about the world and I think really respect children because I think children are very um, intelligent and have an incredible ability to um, comprehend particularly visually visual literacy like I think they look at images so carefully and I think with an eye that most adults skim over but the children will really see so I think yeah I'd say my big struggle I think especially from doing the course that I did um, to trying to create books that I'll be really proud of um, and think uh, really successful is finding um, is being able to be commercial which I think does mean a certain amount of control of color and you know certain colors don't sell and all of that but also but really retaining a real um, spirit of not making it for children but making it (laughs) making a beautiful book that tells a story that that I think children will love because they're they're people and they have as many different unique views of the world as adults and I think um so that's something I think about a lot is how to bait I think it's again that that how to get what I love from my urban sketching and my real life work really really Mm -hmm. into the work I make for children in a way that um doesn't lose the reality of life rather than you know I think I I don't like children's books that are made kind of obviously for a preconceived idea of what a child wants or or needs but I don't know if that makes sense (laughs) yeah it it does actually like Mm. uh, tell me a little bit about the kind of illustrators that do move you that that you feel do a good job with children's illustrations for example well my favorite I feel like is maybe everyone's favorite <laughs> but it's Petrucci Alemania I don't know if you know her books but no, I um, she's Italian illustrator but lives in France and um, I find her work I just love her work so when I I mean I, her work is the kind of thing that just makes me um, wish I can be better every day you know real motivating and I, and I just the the joy and the life and the color and I think she she's just an artist I would say that um really captures imaginations and so I'd say my goal as an illustrator is for children is to be an artist that really captures imagination and can really hold people's imagination and make them wish they were in there or know what it felt like to be in there um and I'd say Petrucci Alemania does that so so beautifully and I think it's her 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 use of color is like um she she often uses a lot of browns and greens and it's not all bright and um there's nothing kind of cutesy about it and the emotion that she gets in there is just 
fantastic and her characters um anyway i she's she's probably my hero and then mm-hmm. i also love carson alice who you might know who's um she's based in portland in the u.s i think and she she's just magic as well again her work's very flat um so maybe i've i sort of draw a bit on her in my inspiration but i also love her use of color and again these i'd say both of these authors are very and illustrators are very successful but you'd never necessarily think their work is for children i think carson ellis also does a lot of work for um musicians and um yeah there's a lot of just beautiful artistry in in there i mean i think my favorite children's book illustrators create pages that i would hang on my wall <laughs> that that are, you know they're not yeah and i i suppose i one day i hope i can uh push my work so that a page it's not just a, a cute image that is clearly made for a child but that it's a beautiful scene with a beautiful um feeling in there that anyone might want to escape into for a moment so i think yeah, those yeah. two really inspire me. Yeah, yeah, that's that, that's very well put. Like, there's this kind of universal appeal to to shoot for, rather than almost like a commercial angling or a focus grouped angling for what works for children. Mm-hmm. And let's give them bright colors. Let's make a shiny dinosaur yeah. and things like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, uh, you mentioned that uh, your early urban sketches were mainly line work and ink work. And then you started slowly putting colors into things. So uh, firstly, one aspect of this is, of course, how you incrementally add complexity, add layers and add to the challenge of capturing what you see. But the other aspect, and uh, I've been sort of diving back into watercolors lately, mm-hmm. and I've, I've, I hadn't touched them for almost three years. And now I'm sort of trying to do it again after having been inspired by some of my guests. Um, so the thing that I found also changes is how you see the world. So uh, I want to ask you a little bit about this, about how you uh, naturally see the world when you go out with a sketchbook. Is it is it more colors and textures or do you think you still see more lines and shapes first? What, uh, what, what order of importance do they have for you? How does that translate to how you put them down? So that, I think that's a really interesting question because I think... Um, I, I live in the country at the moment and I think I've always hated drawing the country. I think it was one of the things I, well, not always, until recently I've probably, I've hated drawing the country. And I think when I found Urban Sketches, I think I was so ex- excited because they drew the city, like they drew, they they didn't, I think my idea of sitting outside and drawing was just sort of that plein air kind of watery like bland kind of landscape here I mean some of it's beautiful but I it's it's never been my thing I've never wanted to sit out and do that and I think so I was and I've also loved cities so I think my pen work and seeing in lines was really really worked for me in urban environments where where I was drawing a lot of buildings and a lot of sharper less organic uh shapes I suppose so I think when I, I in Australia, we lived also in a small country town for a little while before we came here, and I didn't like it very much at all. And I never could find anything to draw. I just would go out, and there'd be heaps of trees, and 
I didn't know how to draw trees. I couldn't find the feeling of a tree like I found with a pen, with just my pen and my ink and my line. I I wanted people. I wanted crowds. I wanted mm-hmm. lots of angles. I wanted and I couldn't. I couldn't make at that time anyway. That my pen and ink work for softer landscapes. Like I feel like the countryside is. Um, so I think I didn't learn to enjoy drawing the countryside or greenery even really or um, until much more recently when I think I got more confident with paint and colour and working in shapes and um, textures of colour. So I think it's been very related to where I've lived, I suppose, is what I'm trying to say. And and also I think what I've enjoyed to draw has changed a lot depending on um, what materials I'm enjoying at the moment. Like I, I we, we keep wondering, well, we're not sure how long we'll stay in this country town. And I actually keep thinking right at this moment exactly this, like, oh, if we go, we might go to Edinburgh next. And if we go to Edinburgh, my all the green ink that I've just bought and been really loving <laughs> is not really going to, you know, be that great and I was like oh how am I gonna draw Edinburgh's incredible like bricks and like beautiful architecture in the way that I've learned to draw the sort of some of the greens and landscapes and sea that I've been drawing lately because that's where I am I I've actually been thinking how am I gonna do that and I and I was Mm -hmm. actually getting excited maybe about the idea of doing more line again and more ink again and um Mm -hmm. so I I think that when I go out to draw it depends on what the way I see depends a lot on what materials I'm really enjoying at that moment because I do I have found for myself I I find certain materials naturally better at for me capturing the feeling of different places Um, but having moved away from line I I really love the um, I feel more diverse and more like I can create a much more um, a much greater variety of settings and feelings and with with more tools um, and more and different varieties of things. So I really want to hold on to that, but I also want to add more line back in. I've, I've been missing my my line, so I've, I want to try and I think my next step is to try and merge those things a bit more. Um, but I think so. I think when I go out to look. It depends what I'm carrying my bag, <laughs> what I what I see. Like if I if I because I often do go out still just with it because I always have a pen and a notebook in my handbag so that if I am waiting in a line I can draw people or something. Um, I do that all the time. I just have notebooks, but they're usually just filled with people because I just draw the little figures that I see everywhere, and that's usually just line. But if I go out. And if I've just bought new ink, like heaps of greens, <laughs> I will go out probably and sit in a field and be like, "Whoa, look at all the greens!" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so for me, it depends what I feel like playing with material-wise. I think changes what I look for when I see. Yeah. 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 That that's so true. Uh, uh, as a as a line work artist, I also avoid trees and I mm. avoid a lot of natural things like bushes and grass are things that I want to suggest but I can't spend time on because I don't have the tool that's best suited to convey what this is Mm -hmm. and if I don't show you the shades of green I'm not really doing a good job of telling you about the grass so I'll just avoid it so I leave it as blank space 
and trees notoriously i just draw the outer shape and i don't get into mm-hmm. really the comp- and of course there are ways to get into it there are yeah. line work yeah, yeah. artists oh, totally. who really get into the trees and i don't have their patience they have so much they have so much uh, strength to to ponder over the details with the lines it's it's such a tedious task whereas with colors i know that with watercolors it would be so much flair and it would be so intuitive it wouldn't be tedious but with lines it's tedious and mm. i don't find myself able to to do that uh, that thing it, it's a very nice thing you mentioned how it changes completely with the tools you have it also changes in my case well uh, what maybe not how i'm putting things down but what i'm looking at also changes a little bit with the kind of sketchbook i'm carrying mm-hmm. the 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 orientation or the format of the page affects what you see and how you mm, compose definitely. your scene mm. yeah um so um uh, i wanted to talk about uh, just this thing about what you said about the way you see the world and in in the process of your urban sketches uh what are the kind of things that catch your eye you mentioned that you've also really like uh, really liked drawing in urban settings and dense areas so what makes a good scene for you have you have you ever had to think about that have you ever faced a situation where you felt that you wanted to sketch but you're missing something in this scene that's not that's not clicking for you yeah oh definitely i mean i i feel like i walk around constantly like oh that's a good scene oh that's not a good scene. that's it's, it's always with me and um i feel like i yeah drive whoever i'm with crazy cuz i might be like <laughs> oh god i'm going to draw that we're going to wait <laughs> um but no i i I think for me it's story that that makes a good scene so I think and that that for me looks like either um like a window in an incredibly cool spot like up really high or a a um or it's the way the the movement of people are flowing through a scene I really I really like when you end up with a particular flow like all the people seem to be mostly walking in one direction or there I f- for me that that's sort of a really um thing I love to capture in a scene like that sense of um of where are these people going and 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 so then I I suppose so I love corners of buildings um I also love when you have angles that disappear so I'll, I will always love a streetscape that bends or goes up hills or there's a staircase or there's so I think that and the places I find hardest to draw and enjoy are are wide suburban streets with lots of cars and spread out houses I hate them like I don't I just really struggle to um, find the joy in there and I think I think I really love I love the city when it's built for people and and not for cars. So I think I definitely enjoy older bits of cities more where they were built prior to the car um, and where cars don't dominate the landscape because then it feels like all the buildings are of a scale that are more and and the, the widths of the streets are of a scale that are all more suggestive of just human story and people doing their things and carrying their shopping up the steps home or the like there's sort of a real um a richness and maybe a suggestion of history again that therefore um gets me really excited about a, a scene or a, or a picture and I think it's something I always find hard Australia whenever I've been in Europe or 
even I don't know even America or other places um, or Asia or anywhere and I get back to Australia I always find it empty I find, I find there's no people and everything's so spread out I really struggle for right. ages to um, tune my eye into the things I like there which often are the tops of houses above the streetscape because they're the older bits and I'm not sure I think I'm definitely enjoy the a- aged aged lands and aged landscapes and aged urban environments a lot more because I find it easier to see the stories and I think the the movements of people through the time and through their daily lives are more imprinted on the landscape in a more um, in an easier to see way it's like they're definitely there in these other places that I don't enjoy but I find it much harder to find the magic and 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 feel the story and therefore want to draw them yeah yeah I, I i think i feel the same way like i i don't really enjoy drawing cars so much and uh you mentioned that you know you're, you're looking for the story and i was thinking at that moment that the story first begins inside our minds mm-hmm. we have to see something and we have to find a story in it and then begins the task of actually communicating that story mm-hmm. to other people through your work but uh so what's interesting about that is that then the art becomes a window into the artist about the things that they find stories in. A lot of my artists, uh, when I first ask them this question, their answer is this, that I'm looking for a story. And I often <laughs> uh, try to then go a little deeper and try to see what does the word story mean to you? Because story means so much to different people. Mm-hmm. And there are artists who are drawing things that I don't find a story in, so to speak, mm. but they see it. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, that's so interesting to me. The, uh, so you're, you're mentioning, and it's, it's so people centric, your art, that you're finding the stories in the activities that people do. And that really resonated with me because I was just telling someone recently that for me, that's what the city is all about. There's, mm. there's no reason for a city to exist, except that people want to do things and they want to do them conveniently. So the only stories in a city or the only reason for a city is that here's something that facilitates human interaction. Here's something that facilitates human transportation. And that's why these things exist. And that's the story about them. So um, uh, let's let's go to travel a little bit because you've traveled into quite a few places and these stories change in all these places. These little things about why does this city exist or what does this city do for the people within it? for the people living here, for the tourists here. Uh, What are some things as an artist that you see changing from city to city that keeps you excited about the idea of traveling and sketching? Well, that's a lovely question. Um, It's a hard one, though. So I think... So I just... I think I just love the new and the different. And I think... So I think... I'll just I'll think of an example. So I feel like um, one of the most magical places I feel like I've ever drawn and that I just had the most lovely time drawing in was a month I spent in Tallinn in Estonia um, a couple of years ago and um, it was really heavy snow for that month so I had a great time drawing in freezing cold temperatures out in the snow um, and the the colors of this beautiful ancient like it's a medieval city 
that didn't get bombed. So it's one of the oldest medieval cities in the world in the world, and it's got all these incredible pastel coloured buildings. And um, now they're nearly all filled with. It's a very artisanal city, so it's filled with makers really. And I think it just um, it just made me so happy to be alive. I just felt like. You've just got like so much beauty, but also connection to so long ago. And I think the the encounter with weather, I think, is a key feature for me. So I I adore the cold, and I I really like um, the way that weather adds atmosphere to a to a place. And I think certain cities look at their best in certain weather conditions and I feel like I feel like I landed upon this one in, the, in its most magical moment and um, I think a new place makes you use well makes me reuse my materials differently or maybe really search out a new material because I for some reason cannot capture what I'm seeing or feeling with the materials that I have um, or the colour that I have, it might just be a new colour. So I feel like every new place I go, I get to learn so much about um, drawing and seeing and how to better capture the world because it it challenges you or challenges me usually to um, increase my vocabulary to be able to do justice to the new the new place, I think. Um, so I, I love the challenge of that. Like it's it's just um, yeah, really, really. You, you, I grow a lot when I travel. I think, and and that's very addictive. <laughs> so uh, yeah, <laughs> but um, so Tallinn was a very it was a very beautiful city to draw. It's funny. I think I I've I've been to like I don't know forty countries, maybe more countries. I don't, I'm not even sure at the moment, but um, heaps of them I went to before I kind of drew again so I, I have this great sadness as well that I've I've <laughs> yeah. lived in all these places and I didn't draw them I was like yeah oh my gosh how could I have lived in Kenya and not drawn Kenya or China like I've I've spent you know two years of my life living in incredible Chinese cities that where just the like the layers of life and the bustle of humanity is just so um so rich and chaotic and wonderful and colorful and all I want to do is revisit is go back and do it again but with my being able to draw it so I think um yeah yeah that's exactly how I felt like I lived uh in the Netherlands for five years as a student mm. and as a researcher and I traveled all over Europe but I wasn't drawing at the time and I feel so awful that I couldn't uh, like I, I think about my database of images and how much richer it would have been if I'd been an artist, if I'd been a, an urban sketcher yeah. at the time and all these missed opportunities. So I was oh, yeah. I was able to visit once since then, since becoming uh, an urban sketcher, but I really, really need to do it a few more times to really get all those images down in my mind. Yeah, and it kind of goes the other way as well. I think it like the the rich like the the way I remember the places that I've been and visited when I've drawn them is is unlike visiting a place in any other way like you can remember how you felt and and what it smelt like and you know just it's just such a nothing really imprints a place on your mind the way that I think sitting and and drawing it does which basically just enriches your entire life every time you do it I feel <laughs> I think for Absolutely. me it's just it's just like 
it, it means you're never you can never get too bored or too you know down about things when you draw because as soon as you go as long as you remember to go out and draw if you, if you get in a bit of a hole and you stop doing it I think it but as, as soon as you remember to go out and sit in the world and draw it suddenly it's it's magic again and I think the just the act of drawing a place makes the place magic in many ways um and so I feel like travel also makes me do it more so it's it's like a it feeds each other kind of yeah mm. yeah absolutely and so you feel a little guilty about these places you've gone that you haven't given this kind mm. of multi-sensorial experience to like the places that I love especially so I was not a sketcher when I went to Paris I was not a sketcher when I went to Rome and I loved these places and now I feel bad that I mm. I don't have <laughs> this memory of them this exactly how you mentioned like I look through my travel sketchbooks and now for the last four years wherever I've gone I've had a travel sketchbook mm. of that trip so anytime I flip through a travel sketchbook all of those senses come rushing back and I remember everything like mm -hmm. how things smelled who was sitting next to me whether I was comfortable or not and, and those things will never be lost and that's how I feel about the places I went before that I wish I had this mm. incredible multi-sensorial multi bank to to look back at those places with oh uh, yeah um so uh, i i also want to know about uh so you uh, i read on your blog about uh, your first children's book illustration that you did the first few projects that you worked on what are some uh, and uh, and also your uh, design work so i was reading about the work you did for uh, birds in australia and the kind of posters and uh, website design and things like that tell me a little bit about the kind of projects you're working on right now um, so right now I am working on three children's books um, and so that's they're actually my main things um, I've also been I've been producing a podcast actually as well for um for sorry there's a another um, not-for-profit in Australia who I've done a lot of design work for um, I am lucky enough just to be kind of in doing general creative work for them um, at the moment so I still do design and things and occasionally edit videos or make videos or um, at the moment it's a podcast. So I'm, I haven't got, I'm not doing heaps of design right now. I, I think I'm, I'm actually mostly illustrating and also podcast producing. What's it like to work on multiple uh, children's book projects at the same time? Are you, trying to keep a clear stylistic difference between them or is it just you manifesting your style? Uh, no, they'll, they'll be different. I think so. I've, they're supposed to actually all be spread out and one's supposed to be finished kind of before I start the next one. So that was the plan. Uh -huh. But obviously they're, they're kind of merging because things get late and other things get hurried. And um, So the one, I'm, I'm nearly finished one and I'm sort of just, beginning another and the third one is sitting there waiting to get started on so but it is I, I didn't want to conceive of any two at the same time I always felt like I can sort of finish one or execute one while I maybe conceive of another one but I think I'd find it really difficult to um, invent say three worlds and three suites of characters at the same time and kind of give them enough um independence and and truth and world of their own whereas I feel like once I've invented one I can probably carry it out 
while I start another one because it's already got a real feeling and a real life and it's really developed its visual style. Um, but I'm hoping they will look quite quite different. I mean, they'll, they'll clearly be by me because that's why people employ me. So you, you can't surprise people too much or they'll be like, <laughs> Where's, why, why are you doing this? <laughs> so, um, but yeah, hopefully they also look quite different. It, it helps because the story, so I'm, I'm not writing these stories. These are all um, stories that publishers have acquired and then they've looked for the illustrator. Um, so that helps in that they're written very differently and they're very different worlds just by their by their nature. Yeah, uh, I I like the idea of uh, and I've I've done it very often. At least uh, that's is how I work. I like having multiple projects at once because I do this thing that I describe as competitive procrastination. <laughs> that I procrastinate on one project by working on the other. And that's how I get things done. But if I had just the one project, I'd be procrastinating against it and it would never be done. So I need to have two or three forces yeah. uh, <laughs> fighting against each other yeah. and then all of them get done. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a really uh, true thing. <laughs> it even, I mean, it even works just when you get tired of one because you really can't work where you, you can. But it's it's hard, I think, to work on one creative thing for a really long time because you do you do tire I think in a different way to other kinds of work that is less uh internally driven so I do think it's helpful I agree to be able to jump between things and I definitely I have I do still have design work for clients that is you know much more um boring in a way but that's quite handy because I do that at the end of the day and I don't have to think about it much it's just getting it done so that balance is really nice because I think you're right it's really if you just had one big project it's it's a challenge to um keep on task and <laughs> yeah yeah and yeah. and you're at different phases with different projects so like you mentioned if you have commissioned design work it does not maybe want your creative juices the way it needs your execution and your yeah. it needs your workflow to yeah. manifest yeah and so you need somewhere for those creative juices to already be expended so that they don't intrude into this and you don't end up overthinking this work you just yeah do what's yeah. needed to be done and sort of helps you to helps you to regulate your energies and regulate your different uh your different uh let's say your different uh aspirations or ideas by by having some different uh sink for them or a different channel for for different things mm. um so you were mentioning at the start also we we spoke about the the course you did in order to learn about children's illustration but also to learn about the practical aspects of being an illustrator how does one go about building a, a portfolio how does one go about becoming you know the, the getting into the job of being an illustrator mm -hmm. so tell me a little bit about that because you're an illustrator without a degree in the fine arts without a degree in graphic design so what is it like to find work what is it like to be in a place how do you get to a place where people reach out to you um I think so f I think it must depend for each person but I think for me um I've been really lucky in that I think I think my illustration work has nearly entirely all come from Instagram and that engagement has entirely come from drawing things I feel like drawing <laughs> um, and just sharing them with the world. So, I, I mean, I think I think y you can't become an illustrator overnight. It's extraordinary amount of drawings have to get made 
I think before you have a look and a style, I mean, I think what people are looking for is usually something that's recognizable to someone. So it's, it's, it's not necessarily that you always draw this the same way or even with the same materials, but that there's a spirit about it that they can know is you. And I think that when they employ you, they, they one want to know what they're getting. So that's important, but I think it's also just, it, it means you've, um, you've I suppose drawn enough that that's really obvious and also of of enough quality that people want to see it and look at it and um, so by far the the biggest thing I think that's helped me is just to draw heaps and heaps and heaps and heaps and also to share it like to to draw it and share it and I think that I know lots of people have different relationships with Instagram and it and it can be not necessarily always positive you know you can you can get into comparison issues and go down quite a quagmire of feeling quite um bad about yourself on Instagram but I think you can also just really use it as a source of inspiration and an incredible place to make connections which is what it has been for me I mean I feel like I have friends through there and I am inspired by it and I also think that sharing on there has um brought me the work that I've got so all my the I've only done one children's book so far and um it was through my folio that or just drawings on Instagram and then I got an agent an agent approached me last December again just through following me for a long time on Instagram um and two of my books I'm working on right now are through her and she's amazing which is so exciting and the third book I'm working on at the moment is someone who's followed me on Instagram for years an art director in the US and so again I think it's um I think just drawing a lot and sharing it and loving what you do and somehow um making sure that love is apparent in what you share I think because people that really resonates with people I think so I'd say that's key I think in terms of the actual children's book um industry things I think the the thing that I'd say most is most important is that they can see that you can hold a consistency of character um and have an appeal in terms of color and um a way with atmosphere I suppose that that they can want to make a book from but I think you can you can draw a great single images but not be able to be an illustrator if you can't show that you can make a character behave differently in different images so it is quite a different thing than um, urban sketching or drawing from life and I think it, it took me quite a lot of effort, well, a heap of effort and, and a lot of work and a lot of um, time feeling quite inadequate, I think, to make that bridge between or to, to be able to show that in my work that I was capable of making a book um, and not just capable of drawing a beautiful scene from from what I see because I think they are quite different. I think um, I did a, or a retreat, a children's book illustration retreat, um, two years ago with um let's click that thing off um with orange beak studio um they're an incredible they were three women now they're the two women here in the uk um and they have a, a wonderful philosophy of really encouraging real life 
to be the base, like drawing from life to be the basis of your illustration. Um, and I think that finding them, they really pushed me. So at this retreat, they would look, they looked at my kind of existing children's book folio that I'd created um, and were like, this isn't good enough and it's um, too line-based and blah, like a whole lot of stuff and they, they really pushed me and I think I left that retreat feeling quite um, inspired but a bit lost, like I didn't really know how to join the dots that they were saying. I could see what they were saying was true but I didn't know how to get there and I think it just it just took heaps more persistence and um <laughs> and now I do now I really feel what they were telling me then like I think it's that thing where you can you can get advice but sometimes you can't really you don't really know how to apply it until you feel it and have actually worked through it and suddenly you get somewhere you're like oh man I totally know what they mean now and I've worked it out and I think yeah anyway so I think I think mate, doing lots of work and sharing work is is for me how I have um, got somewhere and and by being really pushing myself like when I got get comfortable not necessarily just sitting there and doing the same thing but then really being willing to push harder (laughs) and try something new again even if it looks crap again for a while and I think Instagram can be hard for that because sometimes when you're trying something new it it doesn't look like what you're used to posting and you're like, if I share this, people aren't going to like it. And and I think it's taken me a while to be feel more okay with sharing it anyway or else I just make heaps of things I don't share. And that's also fine, you know, until you get to a point where you kind of go, hey, I, I reckon I'm going to share this one. <laughs> so, right, yeah. 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 Instagram sort of disincentivizes us from uh, being self-exploratory like just Mm. trying things because consistency is rewarded and that like number is really preys on you and Mm. a lot of people I feel are stuck in that I I'm stuck in like I I try to push against it but I'm sure in many ways that plays on my mind Mm -hmm. like even right now this is this is what I'm putting myself through I'm trying to get back into watercolors which means uh doing a drawing at a place and letting it be less than what I imagine and mm-hmm. especially because I'm so comfortable with my line work that I know that I can be this good with uh, uh, you know I can reach a certain level with my art if I just stick to the black and white lines but I'm going to try to put colors on it and it's going to be lesser than that mm-hmm. and to do that consciously knowing that it's going to be not firstly it's not going to be as good as I want it to be with the colors and secondly it's not it's the moment I apply colors, it's going to be a little bit worse than it was with just the lines because I'm not so good with colors yet. And that takes a lot of courage. I'm facing, like, I have to I have to push against myself. I have to tell myself again and again that you have to do it. You have to do it. It's just a drawing. You just have to do it. And it's it's not easy, right? Yeah, no, not easy at all. I mean, I think for me, I often hit walls, though, where I do feel like I'm drawing the same thing. Like, like I think with my pen and line, like for ages I was doing pen and watercolour and then drawing transparent figures on top. And I think when I sort of first discovered that, I, I was so excited by it and it, it just every time I drew I couldn't wait to do it. But there did come a day when I felt like I'm doing the same thing again. Like I'm just, even though I'm in a different place, I'm actually not 
like I'm more going to a place looking for where I can execute that picture well rather than going to a place and looking for what the place is giving me and then trying to reflect on that. So I'd say for me there's this like it's always there. It's just this ongoing tension between recreating what it is I already do and and therefore finding the scene that allows me to do that versus seeing a place and then trying to make my tools uh, really react honestly to what I'm seeing as opposed to and I think I think you're always going to do a bit of both but I think I get bored so I also hit a point where I'm bored like I go I'm actually realizing I'm not looking properly anymore I'm I am just recreating what I've done a hundred times. And so I suppose for me that pushed me through that that, and and continues to push me through those moments. But I don't know. (laughs) I don't know if that's how it is for you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I actually, I feel, I feel like the moment I get comfortable is when I have this instinct that something is wrong. I shouldn't be so comfortable. (laughs) <laughs> and I uh, try to like I need to be at the edge of my comfort zone is how I like to think of it that that's where the good things are just outside my comfort zone if I'm getting comfortable that's it's safe and safe is not always good yeah yeah so yeah so that 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 thing is a constant battle and maybe that's one of the reasons why I sort of have to psych myself up to do the watercolors and to apply the color and I did that recently to a drawing and I feel so bad looking at it that it would have been maybe better left as line work but it's just then you have to repeat to yourself it's just a drawing I can't let a drawing have power over me that's which is an (laughs) important psychological thing I had to do that this is just a piece of paper it is not allowed to make me feel anything i'm going to do whatever i want with it <laughs> even if i have to tear it up i have to have the courage to do that that i cannot let anything i create be bigger than me yeah there's so many mind games i think that that go on i, I completely agree i mean i think for me changing careers like the whole you know big change i did was such a constant crisis of of that and so much pushing mm-hmm. and i and i think after a few years i was actually exhausted because i think it does take a lot out of you always trying to push yourself and and like not let the the bad work you know break you down or like really destroy you know it's a, it's it's a lot of effort but um it's worth it in the end i think and it's also probably why we keep doing it i think it's it's why I keep doing it and why I'm not sick of it yet, I think, and why I can't imagine getting sick of it is that it, it always does make you learn so much about yourself and um, about the world and, I don't know, it's it's it just seems that it will endlessly be interesting. I cannot imagine ever mastering it or ever feeling really at peace with it, which is also why mm-hmm. I think I'll keep doing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i that's that's exactly how i feel <laughs> uh so uh, well anna i'm at the end of my questions and i think we've had a really wonderful conversation so i want to thank you for giving me your time and for telling me all these lovely stories i've learned a lot from listening to you oh it's been amazing to talk to you and i feel so honored that you asked to chat to me so thank you very much Thank you for listening to this episode. A great way to get more out of each of these episodes is to subscribe to my weekly newsletter. Every week I share bonus ideas and deeper thoughts from these wonderful conversations that I'm able to have. 
I also talk about how I'm implementing the various lessons I pick up in my own art. If that sounds interesting to you, you can subscribe to my newsletter using the link in the show notes. Buying me a coffee is a great way to support this show, but it is also a great way to start a conversation with me. And I want to hear from you. Tell me where you listen to these episodes. Tell me what they make you think about, how they help you in your work or in your leisure. Recently, a supporter wrote to say that they listened to the show while mountain biking in Northern California. Another wrote to say that the podcast is their companion when they go on walks by the beach. I absolutely love this. I I love how the podcast can be good company in such diverse activities in different parts of the world. I'll see you in a couple of weeks with another new episode where I learned a lot of new things. Until then, thank you for your time and attention. Thank you.